Welcome to Podcast, the show that puts the positive in podcasting. Our program is created by and for people living with HIV, and we're here to explore HIV research in ways that matter. We're accurate, but not clinical. We want to hear and tell stories about what new research means for us, for our health, our love lives, and our relationships. We're based in Toronto, but global in outlook, and we're produced at the Centre for Urban Health Solutions of St. Michael's Hospital by Universities Without Walls. We're podcast, and we're bringing HIV research to life. Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests, and while we respect their expertise, they do not reflect the views of St. Michael's Hospital or Universities Without Walls. I'm your host, James Watson, a person living with HIV and a community-based research coordinator. I'll be your guide for today's journey into HIV research. It's not often you get to speak from the heart and say what's really on your mind at work. But here at Podcast, I get to do just that. I'm allowed to reflect on important issues and learn along with everyone else from some extraordinary people. And all the podcasts mean a lot to me, but some strike a more personal chord. And this is one of those topics. The harmful use of crystal meth is taking a heck of a toll on our gay brothers, folks, especially our gay HIV positive brothers. Anyone who knows me knows I'm drug positive. I've had my own experiences with substances and been close enough to this issue to be forever impacted. Meth can be like a rocket ship to gay sex paradise, at least at first, I get that. But it's often a one-way trip, and the landing is rough and the long-term consequences can be devastating. But that's not everyone's experience, right? Some people seem to manage their meth use in ways that works for them, and that's okay. But meth is a tricky one. It's insidious and it creeps up on you. Meth distorts our sexual desire and plays off so many of our vulnerabilities as gay men. When a friend of mine heard I was doing research for this show, he asked me for some advice on how to approach a loved one he was concerned about. He wasn't sure what to do or say, and, and I think there are lots of people who have been or are in similar situations, including myself. I've struggled not knowing how to reach out, or even if I should reach out. While most gay men don't use meth, there's an incredible amount of stigma cast on those that do. And from our own community. It's, well, it's shameful. And it makes it so much harder for those seeking recovery to come forward. We don't want people to isolate further. We want people to know that they're loved and supported and that there's a way out. If out is what they want. Addiction is a disease, friends. It's not a moral failing. It became clear to me quickly that I couldn't do this topic justice in a single 20-minute episode. There's just too much to talk about. So we decided to do a three-part series to get a bigger picture and focus on solutions. In part one, we discussed the book Lust, Men and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery by David Fawcett. And in part two, we get up close and personal with Crystal Meth Anonymous, the 12-step recovery program. And in part three, we explore how methamphetamine fits within a harm reduction model. This episode is anchored around a remarkable book by David Fawcett called Lust, Men, and Meth, 
A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery, and it explores the intersection of gay men, drug use, and high-risk sex. It's a fascinating read and raises all sorts of questions. It's a great place to start the conversation. I had the privilege of interviewing both David Fawcett and the activist and writer Mark S. King, tag team style, for this episode. David Fawcett is not only the author of this book, but a psychotherapist and a sex therapist who specializes in gay men's health. Mark S. King is a writer and activist who's been speaking out about living with HIV since testing positive in 1985, only weeks after the HIV test was publicly released. His blog, My Fabulous Disease, has been nominated for three consecutive GLAAD Media Awards, and he is also a recovering meth addict and appeared in the 2008 documentary film, Meth. So let's get to it. So welcome to podcast, guys. I appreciate you guys being here. Why are gay men so attracted to this drug? Well, I think there's a number of issues. One is that gay men really often feel that uh, there's some issues that they've been compartmentalizing in their life uh, in terms of sometimes starting with their sexual orientation, but other times some in shame and internalized homophobia and and just the difficulties. And I think, at least in the United States, and I suspect internationally, loneliness. Uh, there's a really chronic loneliness. And meth... Um, as one client of mine described it as uh, he has eight hours of bulletproof happiness right. uh, that he can just check out and, and go numb right. from all those feelings. Right. What, what drew you, Mark, to, to meth? I agree with David. There's a lot of that. To, for me, it was about escape and it was about connection. Escape because I'm, I'm 57 years old. I came of age during AIDS. And there was so much death and mortality that by the time 1996, 1997 rolled around and new drug therapies told us that maybe we weren't all going to die, I wanted uh, to hit the dance floor. I wanted, I felt entitled to the celebration. And indeed, indeed there was a lot to celebrate. Uh, and so people like me who uh, thought we were goners took to the clubs and the dance floors and the gyms and the steroids and the trainers. And pretty soon I was dancing on boxes, having the time of my life. And it was that sense of celebration and escape from what had happened to us as a community that previous generation and that sense of entitlement. And then the sense of connection because I had lost a lot of my peers and I I. I, I found this new tribal community on the dance floor and then slowly through my interactions with other drug users. Then pretty soon what I was escaping was my own drug addiction by doing more drugs and isolating more. And so those people I was surrounding myself with uh, were more and more were we devoting our interaction that community that I thought I was looking for became a community of just a few other people who were using daily the way that I was. Right. And are, are, are pause people more vulnerable to this drug? I think uh, um, yes, in that uh, what I've seen is that if we think of maybe a meth user starting his career, it might be a younger person in their late 20s. It's not the first drug they experiment with, but it comes along quite early. But I think for persons living with HIV, um, I've seen 50, 60, 70-year-olds who are long-term survivors who have, they're not feeling as attractive, they're not feeling as energized, as sexual, uh, they're not feeling visible sometimes in the community. And I think meth really gives them 
uh, as we said, a, a, an opportunity to kind of avoid those feelings, but also it gives them a chance to kind of have a sense of belonging, a connection again. And it gave me it was uh, it gave me a sexual currency that I had not had as a person living with HIV. I entered this this culture in which, oh, you're positive, you're not, we don't even bring it up anyway, and there's not a condom inside, it doesn't matter. This is all about uh, letting go of your inhibitions and uh, going for it, as it were. And so, yes, as a positive person, I, I craved that sort of complete abandon. Right. And uh, and was accepted as much. Now, the inverse is also true, and that is a lot of people who are doing crystal meth, if they're not positive now, they're, they're much more likely to become positive as a result of their meth use because of those very inhibitions. And so the culture of who's doing meth hardcore and who's HIV positive is pretty intertwined. Right. Yes. And do you think U equals U is going to have any impact on meth use or transmission or, or, or the people's approach to crystal meth? Because it's, it's, you know, you're, if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable. Well, you bring up an interesting point, and that is what is the, um, how adherent is someone on crystal meth being with their drugs? In other words, you could say that crystal meth addiction could be the very thing that undoes U equals U because uh, you're more likely to skip doses of your medications. I know I was. Right. That was my experience. When I'm up for 48 hours, three days, four days at a time, no, I'm not thinking about doing my drugs, nor am I eating properly or getting enough rest. So the chances of my having been detectable and uh, 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 transmittable during that time are, are per- pretty high. Right. I think the impact of you because you on destigmatizing HIV will have a beneficial effect, but I'm not sure it'll outweigh the issues that Mark just referred right. to and, and some of the other issues right. that come from use. And the reason for that is there is a culture among those of us who are doing drugs in which those sort of social norms, oh, are you taking your meds? Oh, did you know if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable? That is that is a fairyland far away from the fantasy world we're living in as active drug users. Right. We don't want to talk about that. We don't, we, we don't want to talk about U equals U or condoms or HIV or our mothers. We want to have sex and do drugs. When I say we, I'm talking about my experience. Mm-hmm. Your experiences, results may vary. Right, right. So when we're talking about the effects of meth and recovery, is it necessary to distinguish between somebody who's hit rock bottom, who's just, who's blew up their lives, compared to somebody who's able to, who, who manages to do it once a month or once every couple of months? I, I've uh, come a long way in terms of, I guess, I was pretty, formally pretty black and white in my thinking of, on this. Um, and I do think that uh, meth is very easy to become addicted to, and it's very such a powerful drug that uh, once you cross a line into what I guess I call problematic use now, mm-hmm. um, I believe abstinence is really the only way to go back. Um, perhaps there are people that can do it in ritualized ways, once or twice a year, in, in a context like a circuit party or something, and, mm-hmm. and keep it manageable. But I do know that uh, no matter where someone is on the spectrum, if we, uh, if the first contact they have with any kind of healthcare provider is to demand abstinence, uh, chances we're gonna, are we may lose them. Right. You know, so I think a harm reduction approach absolutely has a place in terms of giving people education, seeing where they're at, helping them decide what they need to do. And they, they think it's a critical piece. As we all know, crystal meth, that fusing of, of, of meth and sex, um, it's, it's, it's a powerful effect of this drug. Um, and you describe it in, in your book as uh, sort of what fires together, wires together, which is, I think is a very apt uh, way of saying it, or hijacking, like sexual desire. Mm-hmm. So uh, can, you, can you explain a, a bit how this connection is actually forged? Yes. So uh, basically, it's 
in terms of uh, neuroplasticity or the ability of the brain to kind of rewire itself on an ongoing yeah. basis, when two behaviors occur at the same time, uh, the brain simply kind of collapses those two things into an undifferentiated firing of, of nerve cells and neurons. And so uh, the two can really quickly happen. And the, the binding agent there is dopamine. Example I use often is when we teach a dog a trick, uh, he associates the behavior and the treat, the dopamine is the bonding agent. Those two things become associated. Right. And the same phenomenon is happening with sex and drug use. People get accustomed to being sexually aroused in the uh, intoxicated state, and those two become very, uh, very much one and the same. The other thing that goes with meth is that it's such a powerful release of dopamine, it's far beyond any natural so-called rewards we have. So, so a mere sex... Uh, without the drug becomes uninteresting, right? right. And people can't even function unless they have that much higher level of stimulation they become dependent on. Right. That was absolutely my story, what David just described, yeah. because it was completely fused for me. And uh, in the recovery process, I had the hardest time with how do I have healthy sex again? I was single at the time, <laughs> no big surprise, and I because I was a drug addict, and I um, had a hard time trying to reintroduce sex into my life. And I had a, I had a therapist tell me, you need to cleanse the palate, Mark. <laughs> cleanse the palate. No porn. No, no, you know, let's not worry about that right now, about a sex life right now. And it took a, I feared that. And I, many relapses that I had on my way to long-term recovery were based on, oh, I'm just horny though. I just want to get out. Right. What I didn't realize is that actually that was, that was my addict self saying, yeah, you're just horny. That's all you are. Right. You just go out and get some sex. Right. And of course I, you know, I immediately was, was using again. The good news for me has been the fact that I am in a loving relationship. I am in a committed relationship and the sex is great. And I don't think about drugs anymore when I have that sex, but I think I needed enough time to get well again and understand what it like, what it means to be to care for the person that you're having sex with and to have that connection uh, because so much of the sex before had been so um, transactional mm. and uh, anonymous. And, and I mean, and, and hey, that's great for some people when they can do it and they're healthy. Mm -hmm. For me, it was not healthy. And I think Mark's experience is really critical just to underscore in that I think there's such a belief out there that um, someone in giving up meth once they once it's become problematic is that they're they're doomed to a life of kind of vanilla boring sex or no sex at all. And I think that right. the that's a total myth. And a recovery is totally possible. Healthy sexuality is possible. It takes time and patience, and it's not easy, but it's certainly possible. So how and I'm still no Pollyanna. Let me just say <laughs> that we're rocking it, okay? Right. And we're both we're both sober, and we're having a great time. And it's the, it's better sex than I could have thought I would be having at this age. So I'm, right. I'm happy. In your foreword, because you write the foreword to, to David's book, you, you talk about how reassuring it was to read that there were physiological reasons for your addictive behaviors. In, in your opinion, how does knowing the science of addiction help in recovery? Well, clearly, I don't know this science but as well as someone like David does. And I don't think that you have to in order to get well. But to me, it was just reassuring to know I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm not a shameful pervert. Because there were a lot of things that I did, that I said, that I watched right. during my active use that are not my authentic sexuality and about which I felt a lot of shame that I went into therapy once I got clean to get over that. And so it's very reassuring to know that these uh, that the pushing of the envelope and the sorts of things that David talks about in his book in terms of, you know, trying to you have to get more bang for your buck. And so suddenly the fantasies get darker and uh, the sex gets stranger and further away from who you really are. 
So coming back to who I was again was a, a lot of years ago when I realized science is on my side and therapists like David understand that uh, this was this is just part of, of, of the wreckage of my use. And because of the unique impact of meth on the brain physiologically in terms of do- destroying the dopamine transport system, meth has some unique characteristics in terms of the recovery process. And I think one of the great satisfying reactions I've had to, to readers of the book is that they can understand, okay, there's a reason why I keep relapsing, why I, um, I can't feel pleasure for so long, uh, why I'm confused, why I'm impulsive. It's the brain healing. It's a traumatic brain injury, really. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's very reassuring to know, gosh, this is a normal process. Right. And I'm Absolutely. on it. Yeah. Now, in that book, you, you list sort of seven essential tools for a strong recovery, um, such as developing empathy and embracing self-compassion and forgiveness. So how can a person use these tools in a practical way, or, or do they need to seek help? Can they use them themselves? Is that enough? Absolutely. I think I think it is beneficial to get professional help sometimes, just because there's a lot of issues that, that have come up, including deeper issues. And uh, oftentimes, for a gay person using meth, having... Uh, discovering who they are without the drug is like a second coming out in a way. But but um, I of those seven uh, tools that I think are really useful, I think mindfulness is probably the the first step, the critical one to just right. become self aware right. and just watch. And it's and mindfulness isn't some complicated um, thing. It's just being simply being present and, right. and watching your feelings and reactions. Right. So on that note, you know, and this is a question to both of you. Um, it, it, if and when a meth user, because I'm sure this has happened, reaches out to you for help, what is the first piece of advice you would give them? Well, the first thing I would do is is check myself and make sure that uh, I'm in a good spot in terms of not re-shaming, not re-stigmatizing, not uh, doing anything that might drive that person away. And so I think oftentimes um, I would say just connect connect with other people, with peers, with a therapist, with, and oftentimes one of the sad things is that many meth users by the time they bottom don't have many people in their lives. Right. I've had many people in therapy who describe their support system as Joe from Grindr. You know, that's the, that's the extent of it. And so I think to really to, to reform those connections is probably the, the bedrock of, of recovery. The first thoughts that I usually say to someone like that is, you're not alone, it gets better, and recovery is possible. Uh, for a while, I didn't believe that, that, that my recovery was possible or that I even deserved it right. because of what I'd been through. And so to be able to say to somebody, recovery is possible and you deserve to get well, just to be able to start building the building blocks of self-esteem in somebody again. So how can the gay community help, do you think? How, um, you know, what, do we, what do we need to do to create safe spaces for, for recovery? I think we need to talk about this. I, uh, I'm not as familiar in, with the situation in Canada, but certainly in the States, uh, it's still kind of a, something no one wants to talk about. No one wants to go there. Um, we occasionally will have, a, uh, with a lot of effort, a town hall meeting, and then just kind of there's no follow-up. It just kind of drops into the mist again. Right. So I think to really um, drag this out in the daylight and talk about this as an issue that we are going to have to confront, just like we did HIV, right? We have to take it in our own hands and really... Um, educate providers and, and advocate for money. There's been some wonderful work in New York City where they, the community really advocated for money and they've, they, uh, they got it and they got data and they got programs to follow. So I think that it really starts from the ground up. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so you. much. Thank you.
A big podcast thank you to Dr. David Fawcett and Mark S. King for sharing their fascinating insights into meth use and offering us some practical advice for healing and recovery. Hearing both perspectives, the clinical and lived experience at the same time, was incredibly engaging, truly enlightening. Thank you. I highly recommend both David's book, Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery, and Mark S. King's blog, My Fabulous Disease. Thanks for listening. Production services are provided by the Ontario HIV Treatment Network.